0: For those of you who have been thinking about joining the choir, that was God's way of saying email James today. (laughs) Beloved, let us pray. God you are so good to us. Awaken us to your goodness in scripture, in story, in conversation, in silence, in word, in deed, in every aspect of our lives. This we pray in the precious name of your son, our Lord. Amen. Well, friends, by my count, we are officially halfway through the first month of a new year, which means we are well into New Year's resolution season, that special time of year when really well-meaning people resolve to do better, be better, behave better in the new year. Now, for those of you who are curious about this ritual, according to a poll conducted by Forbes Health, the most common New Year's resolution for 2023 was improved mental health, followed closely by improved fitness, weight loss, and diet goals, no surprise there. Their poll also revealed that younger generations feel more pressured to make resolutions Men are more confident in their ability to reach their goals than women. And most people actually believe that their resolution will continue beyond this year into the next, which is interesting because about 50% of people will give up their resolution by the second Friday of January, which happened last Friday, also known as Quitter's Day. Now, as far as rituals go, it doesn't get more secular than this one, which is interesting because this tradition began as a religious ritual in ancient Babylonia over 4,000 years ago. Back then, ancient Babylonians would usher in a new year by making promises to the gods to settle their debts and return what they had borrowed in the year to come. They believed that if they made good on their promises, God would bless them. And if they broke their promises, God would curse them. A worldly tradition swimming in spiritual waters a reality that we rarely see in the year 2023. After all, in this day and age, there are few, if any, people who actually believe that God will smite them if they renege on their gym membership. In this day and age, we like to organize the various aspects of our lives in very clean and neat categories, the sacred and the secular, the holy and the human, the church, and the state. Whether out of a noble desire to honor diversity or be politically correct, even people of deep faith have gotten so used to separating all that happens up there from all that happens down here that we can hardly imagine a time when that wasn't the case. But there was such a time. In his book titled, A Secular Age, philosopher Charles Taylor recalls a period in Western society during the Middle Ages when the existence of God was assumed and belief in God was unanimous. To the common person, God was everywhere and in everything, whether in the form of blessings or curses, anointings, or even possession. Humanity was perpetually pervious to the divine, the sacred in the secular, the holy in the human, the church in the state. Now one does not need to dig too far back into history to see that this belief that God is wrapped up into every human endeavor can lead to terrible and devastating consequences. As created ones, we should never assume that we have God all figured out. That said, we should also not assume that God wants to be kept separate from the world. After all, if that religious tradition that we just celebrated called Christmas teaches us anything, it is that God is not only for us and with us, but working through us in the most unsacred of places, by the most unholy of people, in the most unrighteous of moments. In other words, the ministry of the ordinary. I think that one of the most tragic distinctions we have made in modernity is the notion that ministry is limited to the priestly, to the ordained, to the missionary, to the church. I have heard enough of your stories to know that the most extraordinary examples of ministry are taking place in the most ordinary of places, in the most ordinary of ways. At the workplace, at the dinner table, in the classroom, the street corner, in public and in private, in times of plenty and in times of loss, diverse expressions of one simple truth, that no matter who we are, where we live, or what we do, we all participate in God's mission, whether we are aware of it or not. The ministry of the ordinary. And so for the next six weeks, we are going to explore the idea of everyday faithfulness. Honoring a tradition we started a few years back, we are going to take this time at the beginning of the year in worship to be in conversation, not only with scripture, but with one another. And so today we kick things off in Exodus 1 with the story of Shifra and Pua, as well as in conversation with a beloved member of this community. Bronwyn Harris. Friends, hear now God's word for you today as it comes to us from Exodus chapter one. Now a new king arose over Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built cities, Python and Ramesses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in opposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women, he said, and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, uh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very strong. Friends, the word of the Lord. As far as scriptural, scriptural narratives go, this one is about as straightforward as they come. It's all right there, plain as day the context, the conflict, and the resolution. First, the context. Exodus tells us that the the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, had grown so numerous, so productive, so prosperous, they began to strike fear in the hearts of the powerful. So much so that the king of Egypt set out to do everything he could to diminish these people. First, by enslaving them. And when that didn't work, by outright killing them. It's your classic tale of power holding on to power through means of suppression and oppression and extermination. Which we, leads us right to the story's conflict, Pharaoh's plan to kill every Hebrew infant boy. His weapon of choice, two midwives by the name of Shifra and Pua. Two women whose names never get uttered again in all of scripture, and yet they are the heroes of this story. They are our resolution. Together they defied the most powerful man in the land. Together they prevented the systematic slaughtering of innocent children. Together they saved their people from extinction. How? By doing what they always did by showing up when called to the homes of women in the midst of labor, by helping those women through the pain of childbirth, and then by making sure the infants in their care were delivered safely into the world. A job, a vocation, a ministry they honored even in the most terrifying of circumstances. By now you're probably remembering how I said that this sermon series is on the ministry of the ordinary, and Shifra and Pua, well, they seem anything but ordinary. They are superheroes, rock stars, warrior women from Wakanda. Now I don't know about you, but when I read this story, my initial response is that I am nothing like these unbelievable women. I can't keep a New Year's resolution, let alone save an entire nation. But if I look closer, I realize that they are not as different as you and me. You see, they did not set out to change the world or start a revolution. They did not ask for a life of intrigue or danger. As scripture tells us, Shifra and Puah were just two midwives who feared the Lord. And even then, It doesn't say that they had faith big enough to move mountains or conviction strong enough to fight armies. All it says was that they feared God, which simply meant that they knew who God was and what God was capable of. In light of that knowledge, who were they to stand in God's way? Who were they to doubt God's power? And who were they to assume that God couldn't and wouldn't use two ordinary people like them. Friends, in light of that knowledge, who are any of us to assume that God can't and won't use ordinary people like us? As you ponder that question for yourself, I invite you now to listen to the story of one of our own, Bronwyn Harris. Ronwyn, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story and your experience and your ministry throughout your life. I'm sitting with your amazing book, Literally Unbelievable Stories from an East Oakland Classroom. And in the introduction, you write, for eight years, I taught at an elementary school in the most violent neighborhood of Oakland, California. This placement was my first job as a new teacher. I was 24 years old and had been trained in how to set up a classroom, how to assess reading levels, and how to do read alouds of Caldecott award-winning picture books. So can you first just start out by telling us, your First Press family, how you got into teaching in the first place?
1: Sure, so um, teaching in Oakland, the decision to teach in Oakland was one of the only times I had ever heard God very specifically tell me to do something, almost like an audible voice. I was in the credential program at Sac State, and I knew that this is what I had to do. And at that point, like many points, um, Oakland Unified was such a mess that my advisor actually told me that it was such a bad idea to teach in Oakland that she wouldn't write me a letter of recommendation if I decided to apply. So I didn't ask her for a letter of recommendation, and it turned out I didn't really need one because they were so desperate for teachers, and I ended up teaching in um, the most violent area of Oakland during that time, very, very high-violence, low-income area. So then what,
0: I mean, just reading that introduction from your book, that was not what you were trained for. No. It was probably not what you expected. So what surprised you? Uh, in those early years in this placement?
1: The amount of trauma that the kids carried was surprising. And when I got my credential, we did not yet have the term trauma informed education. We had not started talking about adverse childhood experiences. None of that was included and we'd never heard of that. So I had no training for that. And the kids, they had all the trauma that comes from gun violence, um, gang activity, uh, a lot of drugs in the area and most of them had um, had someone in their family shot, seen somebody shot or had a family friend shot. Um, and even those who had really you know stable caring families were carrying around this trauma of the neighborhood. And then in addition, you throw in just massive educational inequality and the fact that um, a lot of single parents were working two or maybe even three jobs to survive. So the older kids had to really take on caring for the younger kids in a way that deprived them of their childhood. And then these kids would show up and I had to teach them when they had all this going on, sometimes didn't have enough to eat, sometimes didn't have safe areas to sleep. And then they would just show up and we'd expect them to learn.
0: I imagine that even the best teaching credential programs, master's programs, educational institutions couldn't have prepared you to respond to, deal with care for the kind of trauma that you were experiencing um, in the classroom. So what? where did you draw the strength or the wisdom or the reservoirs of of uh,
1: just, yeah, wisdom <laughs> to keep to right. doing this work? Well, I was active in the First Pres Young Adult Group then, and um, there were a lot of teachers in that group, and so we tried to support each other. Um, I had one of the more difficult, there are different ways ways of of having your classroom be difficult, but I had one of the more difficult um, classrooms in terms of trauma, which brings a lot of secondary trauma to the teacher, Um, and people were very, very supportive. And the small group I was in at that point was very supportive. And um, one thing I did was every year I'd ask someone, I'd find someone to pray for each of the kids in my classroom all year to commit to praying for a child all year. And um, I lasted eight years, which was more than anybody else at the school at that time. And I don't know that I would have lasted one year without the prayer and support that came from this community among some others I had.
0: I mean, yes, you lasted eight years. At seven years, you were the most senior teacher at the school.
1: Right. Why did you stay? How did you stay? (laughs) Right. It's funny. I had other job offers um, from within the district and some of them up in the hills. And one woman offered me a job um, at a school up in the hills and I turned it down. She said, Are you turning me down to stay at your current school? And she was just, flummoxed, Um, but I felt very much like it was a calling, although I was really having to learn on the job in a lot of ways and part of why I stayed was the amazing community who taught me how to be more than a young idealistic white teacher who thought she could save the kids, who taught me how to actually be part of a community, um, a diverse community, to taught me um, how to listen to people of color when they were explaining what was going on. Um, and the more I understood that um, what the kids needed was continuity and um, stability from teachers, the more I wanted to stay. And we had such a high turnover that after two years, the parents would say, oh, Miss Harris has been there forever because two years felt like forever. But when I started getting you know, um, younger siblings and younger cousins or whatever of a certain family, then, you know, I really understood, um, you know, I started being invited to t-ball games and to baptisms and going to church with people and barbecues, and it was just amazing because, um, you know, I had been uh, accepted into these different cultures.
0: Right, and which is a gift, and also I imagine a challenge. I mean, in your book, you do talk about what it was like being a white female teacher. Um, I mean, this weekend, we are celebrating celebrating and honoring the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And in your book, you write about how on that day during your first year of teaching, y'all were talking about the civil rights movement and specifically about the desegregation of schools. And you write, during this discussion, one of the kids looked very confused and said, but black kids don't go to school with white kids. In her experience, this was true how did you show up as yourself, but also um, mm-hmm. honor the, the realities and the experiences that so many of your students were experiencing in their lives?
1: Well, I made a lot of mistakes, you know, like when I said that, you know, I didn't even think about the fact that I was at a school of 1,100 students at that point, and there was not a single white student. Luckily, the, the moms of the kids would talk to me about, and they'd just be very honest, they'd say, "Miss Harris, We know you're used to this. That's not how life is for black kids. You know, they talked to me about their fears of their black or Latino or Asian kid being treated differently in various ways. They talked to me about their fear that their black son would be labeled as angry and it would follow them their whole life. And um, I think this was divine intervention that I listened because my MO is to be stubborn and defensive and think that I understand something and something this is not natural to me. So I think this this must have been God's leading. Something caused me to listen and be humble and to learn from them. It just, I I think it changed everything about my teaching and my relationship with the students and the families.
0: So what I'm so inspired and have gleaned in this already short conversation is that um, in your ministry, you have a ministry of listening and a ministry of staying. Right, Hmm. Even for eight years, which was particularly for this school, it felt like a lifetime, right? And so even maybe even more impactful than the ministry of teaching or educating was your ministry of just showing up, staying, and listening. And so in your life right now, now that you are no longer in the classroom, you are an author, you are a speaker, you're still an educator, how do you continue this call or your ministry um, that you feel called to? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, a lot of it is um, talking to people, particularly other white people, about the realities and how what we know and understand is not the same as everybody and encouraging all of us to listen to people of color, to listen to, for example, black Americans when they talk about you know police violence or what it's like to be black in America and not to excuse it and not to justify it um, and not to You know, place our guilt on anybody, but just to sit with our uncomfortable feelings because we need to listen and honor others' experiences and learn from it.
0: Thank you. You, since I met you, since I've read your books, you've been an inspiration and a challenge to me Mm -hmm. in how to show up and how hard it can be to show up and so i guess i want to just give you the opportunity if you have any final words for the congregation any words of encouragement or
1: challenge well um what really struck me and i think what really broke my heart about teaching where i did was that the kids in my class um already understood um the brown and black kids already understood that their lives were not considered as worthy as other kids Mm-hmm. And they had already internalized that and showed me in many, many different ways that they understood that they were not considered um, as valuable. What I'm fighting for, I think, for you know the rest of my life is to show that um you know all the kids belong to us, and if there's any situation that we would not put our kids grandkids, nieces, nephews into that that's not acceptable for any kid. Mm-hmm. And so to um, work on that and just, um, you know, the minute a a child understands that they're valuable, that they're loved, that they're created by God, and that um, they're worthy of respect and that someone in an authority figure is respecting them, you know, everything changes. Mm.
0: Amen. Bronwyn, thank you so, so much. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you in other settings, but thank you. You are such a blessing to this entire
1: community. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me do this.
0: Friends, obviously, that is only a very brief and challenging and inspirational and provocative portion of Bronwyn's story. And so for those of you who are eager and have the capacity to hear more, Amos and I will be talking with Bronwyn on this month's episode of our podcast on healing justice. This is crucial. And you can also get her book, which is entitled Literally Unbelievable. Now, much like Shefra and Pua, Bronwyn doesn't preface this book fixating on the depths of the problem in the classroom or even her limitations as a teacher. Instead, she opens it with the words of one of her former students, a fourth grader at the time, Akila. The page is entitled, My Dream. In it, she writes, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream that there would be equality and peace. Dr. King wanted his children not to be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that when I grow up, I can go to college and work very hard. I have a dream that none of my family will be killed or die unnaturally. I have a dream that my community won't have any more shootings. I have a dream that this country will never again have segregation or discrimination. I have a dream that the world would be a better place. On this weekend remembering and honoring the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I am struck how just like Shifra and Pua and Bronwyn, the impact of Dr. King's extraordinary life was the result of a lot of ordinary acts of faithfulness. Just like our heroines from Exodus, Dr. King never set out to change the world or start a revolution, but he knew that God wanted better for humanity. God wanted better for all of God's children. It's funny how even as a Baptist minister, the Reverend Dr. King's ministry was not limited to the church. Instead, his ministry was defined by each opportunity he had to help someone in need to speak truth to power, and even choose nonviolence in the face of so much death. Why? Because he feared the Lord. He knew who God was and what God was capable of. Who was he to stand in God's way? So I want to close today with a quote from Dr. King's 1968 sermon at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, consistent with the way he lived his life. His sermon entitled, The Drum Major Instinct, reminds us of the ministry we are all a part of in Jesus Christ. He preached. And so Jesus gave us a new norm of greatness. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. And everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart of grace and a soul generated by love, and you can be that servant. Amen.